0: And so for me, it's been an evolving God. It started out as the group, you know, because the group together, I trusted the group conscience. And then it's been evolving and I, I study everything and I can't describe my God. My God does not belong to a single religion. My God belongs to all of them. And I'm allowed to have that in AA. And that's the cool thing. And if your God belongs to a religion, we encourage you to have that, even if it's different than somebody else's. The beautiful thing in Alcoholics Anonymous, and this helped me, which means that you can have very different people in the same room. And all we do is use the word God, and it can mean whatever it needs to mean to you. It can mean the tree, it can mean Buddha, it can mean Jesus, it can mean anything that works for you and that is what I, that is my favorite thing about aa
1: well hello friends of bill w and other friends you have landed on sober speak my name is john m Hello my little chickadees, that was the voice of Cindy M that you heard at the beginning of this here episode, episode, what episode is this, this is episode number 303 and you are going to hear so much more from Cindy, Cindy, excuse me, in un momento, but first things first, this here episode is brought to you by... Idaliza and Brad and what you may ask did Idaliza and Brad do well let me fill you in they went to our little website www.soberspeak.com they clicked on that little yellow donate tab and they made a contribution oh, did my voice just break up a contribution so thank you so much Idaliza and Brad this here episode is coming right out to you all right let's skip over some of my nonsense that i many times have on the beginning of this and get right into cindy because you you folks are going to enjoy this one this is cindy m we are calling this one evolving god cindy is from Louisville. Louisville. Louisville is Don M uh, kind of taught me to slur the word there a little. But anyway, but she has a home also in Cincinnati. And we talk about this on the podcast, on the episode, I guess I should say. Cindy has a sober date of December seventeenth of nineteen. 19- 1985 and as Cindy says when we're talking she has a big story and boy does she have a big story we discuss so many things but at the top of the list for me at least for sponsorship long-term sobriety and what that means and then we get into Cindy's story a little bit of her homelessness uh, that she experienced and how she was cycled through the foster care system and orphanages as as a child. And then she also hitchhiked across the country at a very early age. Cindy was actually emancipated as an adult at age 17 She had seven felonies, alcoholic seizures, jail time. One of the most um, uh, intriguing parts of this uh, story to me was her trauma that was triggered at 17 years sober when she had a back surgery. Uh, We talk about PTSD, dealing with chronic pain, and Cindy's life as a circuit speaker within alcoholics anonymous and folks that is just the tip of the iceberg so enjoy cindy m on this here episode number 303 and as always we will have plenty of listener feedback at the end of this here episode enjoy okay everybody so today we're sitting here uh with cindy m cindy with a y uh, M. And so, Cindy, I'm going to go ahead, let you introduce yourself, give your sobriety date if you wish, and tell people where you live in this great land of ours, please.
0: Hi, uh, my name's Cindy. I'm an alcoholic. I've been sober since December the seventeenth, nineteen eighty five every single day in a row. In a and, row. <laughs> <laughs> and primarily, uh, I live in Louisville, Kentucky, but I also live part-time in Cincinnati, Ohio.
1: Okay. Louisville, Kentucky, and in Cincinnati, Ohio. Okay. So, and why do you go back and forth between the two locations?
0: Well, um, you know, I'm, I'm at an age that I was saving for a second home and my, uh, my parents, um, are ill. My dad had cancer. My in-laws have Alzheimer's. So I bought a house here so that I could be close and help them, which is a miracle of recovery. Not usually where people dream of their second home, Cincinnati, yeah. but <laughs> that's where I have mine.
1: <laughs> and that's really cool that, um, people can lean on you, depend upon you. And I'm sure we'll get into your story in a second. Uh, I'm I'm sure it wasn't always that way.
0: (laughs) No, this is taking care of them is a huge miracle and was a lesson in forgiveness. Um, Actually, you'll hear more later, I'm sure. But it's just it's a very big, amazing thing that I'm so grateful for.
1: Okay, so you were referred to me by Rena, Rena K, who has been on uh, the the uh, podcast in in the past. And what's your relationship with Rena?
0: I sponsor Rena. Lucky me.
1: Yes, you are a lucky person to be able to sponsor her. And I, I think you also sponsored Jennifer HK, who lives down here in my area. I um, did. So, talk to me about sponsorship and what that has meant to you throughout your sobriety.
0: Well, both sides of sh- sponsorship are equally important, is my experience. And, you know, my sponsor says if you only have one side, either side, what you have is a cesspool with one pipe in and no pipe out. <laughs> and so, and, so uh, and I and I believe that. But mm-hmm. um, sponsorship saves the day. For me, having a sponsor that I'm willing to hear is really important in that relationship. Which it was the first place I have really learned about intimacy and really unconditional love on both sides. The women I sponsor, I can't tell you how much I love and respect them. I believe in shoulder to shoulder sponsorship. So I, I learned so much from them. I sponsor some incredibly wise and amazing women.
1: So what do you mean by shoulder to shoulder?
0: Um, I don't believe in hierarchy and sponsorship. Gotcha. Like I, don't be- I also don't believe that in hierarchy and recovery. In other words, I can sit in the backseat the same as somebody that's a year sober. I, I, I just want everybody in the car. And some folks, um, and it's okay because that's their value system. And that's one of the real gifts of recovery for me is that I can have a different one, but not judge yours. And I can celebrate yours. So if you believe that always the person with the longest sobriety goes in the front seat, when you travel, I can champion that and appreciate it. I just believe differently and that's okay. And that's one of the gifts of longer sobriety because in shorter sobriety, I was very much rigid, my way or the highway kind of gal.
1: Yeah, I remember that. Uh, Yeah, (laughs) I I was the same way. I remember just like I shudder about some of the things that I said in meetings, kind of a, uh, I don't know, right wing kind of statements. I don't really know how, like (laughs) it's my way. This is how the people got sober in the beginning. And if you don't follow this, you're not doing it right. I can remember all that.
0: Then you see people get sober and stay sober doing it different. And it's like, yeah. the only thing I think we must have in common, I don't think we get any peace and serenity if we don't work the steps and grow along spiritual lines, whatever that means to you. But you know, that's, that's, that's what I believe. And I believe that what my job as a sponsor is, is to hold women's hands as we go through the steps. And what I've been really blessed with the last 10 years is women with long-term sobriety that are amazing, incredible women have asked me to sponsor them. And so the gift is how do we apply the steps and revisit things because we are more mature, both in our sobriety and our life and, and unlayer that onion a little bit more so that we can be more of what God had chosen for us to be. And that's frightening when you're long time sober to go and do that. It's a big jump to do that. And, But it's the biggest gift in my life to get to walk shoulder to shoulder with somebody doing that. It means I share my stuff too. It means that it's not just, you know, I'm not their parent. I'm not their teacher. It means that we're on a similar journey. We're exploring. We're holding hands. That's, That's what that shoulder to shoulder means to me.
1: Yeah, I love it. And I also know I'm with you, I'm kind of starting at the end and going back. But you know, I, like I always say, I just like to make this conversation organic and particular questions come to mind. I know that you are a business woman. Mm-hmm. Uh, and can you describe the kind of work you do? And or I, I mean, I'll leave it to you how much information you want to give. But I, I I just want to know how you, what kind of business do you do, how you got into it, what what it means to you in terms of recovery.
0: Yeah, let me give you the background. Okay, um, I uh, started drinking very young. It was it, it, um, it was my solution. I think it kept me from killing myself in the beginning. I felt like I was bleeding from the inside out as a kid. There was a lot of violence in my life. And a lot of, uh, there's a lot of things and I reacted to it alcoholically. And so um, I ended up being homeless and living on the streets and doing all the things people on the streets do. I did not go to high school. I didn't just not graduate. I didn't pull. When I got sober the first time it was 1980. So I had five years around before I finally was able to really get and stay sober. And I got here on seven felonies um, and I became an emancipated adult because I had burnt the system out. So an uneducated Can, excuse person-
1: Excuse me real quick. What, yeah. what is an emancipated adult? What does that mean?
0: It means that even though I was barely 17 years old, they made me be a legal adult. Ah. So that I would be responsible for myself. And I had they didn't want to put me in juvenile anymore. They put me in county jail. And they were going to try me as an adult. And I was very fortunate that I went into alcoholic seizures in jail, which are very dangerous. Alcoholic seizures are worse. Alcohol withdrawal is worse than any drug withdrawal. It's more dangerous. You can die. It only lasts three days, but you can die. And so uh, because of that, a judge got me to a treatment where they could physically take care of me. And I, I ended up um, getting an opportunity to to be exposed to sobriety and I did not go to prison. And so it was just a series of gifts for me. So then I, I got sober and I've always, um, you know, when I was a little kid, I cleaned houses and mowed lawns and things like that. And, uh, I, I was a, it was a, uh, a way that I could be away from home and it was rewarded instead of threatening anybody, you know, cause I was out making money and, uh, so when I got sober, I worked places and then I started a business.
1: And and just real quick, I want to back up a little bit when you were 17 and childhood and stuff like that. And I've heard a little bit of your story, not all of it, but I know you were living in different cities, kind of traveling the country and such. Uh, So can you talk a little bit about that? And also I wanted to know, are Are these the the same parents that you're taking care of today? Were these the same parents that were raising you at that time?
0: Yes. Wow. That's the miracle. And I have a big forgiveness story around that. And so, yeah, I, I hitchhiked from one end of this country to the other. I was in over two dozen institutions, foster homes. Oh, by the way, the parents that I was adopted into that family as an infant. And then I still went back to orphanages, foster homes. My dad, um, my dad probably has dissociative disorder. And um, one of the things that I learned in long-term recovery was that he really did very much love me. I, I didn't feel love because it was so inconsistent, and it was coupled with violence. And so one of the gifts of recovery. You know, and it's what I tell my girls. It's like, before you tell me your story about your parent, tell me their story with theirs. Mm -hmm. And when you can see that, then all of a sudden things begin to align and make more sense. And there's compassion. I could not forgive my parents until I became usefully whole in recovery. So when I became like the, all the holes God filled you guys filled I had to do an awful lot of work but what happened was then I didn't need them to fill those I wasn't looking for them to parent me or make up for all the hurts I could come to them as an adult and see them as people instead of parents and when I could do that I had lots of empathy for them and it took me a long time this did not happen I forgave my dad at 17 years sober so it didn't happen. I mean, my, my, my dad, you know, it's like he, my, I've had surgeries, lots of surgeries, lots of surgeries on my back. Most of those happened from a wreck, but it exacerbated a break that happened when I was a kid from getting kicked through doors. And the great thing that happened was when I had to have this big surgery and they had to cut part of my spinal canal. The great thing that happened was that it triggered all that trauma that I thought I was over. And when I was in the hospital, and
1: wow!
0: So at 17 years sober, I'm like, holy moly, what do you do with this? I thought I was done with this. And I was at least connected with the sponsor. So here's another thing of why connection with the sponsor is so important. And I called that sponsor. I'm like, what do I do? And what we did was we went and did a lot of forgiveness work and, um, and through that it's been healing ever since. And then um, in 2010,
1: just real quick, I want to go I want to go back to that yeah. cuz I have not heard of that sort of trigger before. A uh, surgery triggering trauma. Mm-hmm. A- a- have you run across other people that has happened to and are you able to explain exactly what goes on in a in a situation like that? I
0: have- necessarily run into that surgeries but i've run into like when i tell my story i get a lot of calls about two things um one is trauma right and um and different things trigger it for different people and you know you know how do we remain a sober woman and how do what are all the tools i've used to work through that and i'm blessed that I can share that. There are very few experiences I haven't had around that. And I've been diagnosed with severe PTSD. It doesn't run my life. It doesn't rule me. You know, I've been so blessed. I I have all of these tools that I get to share with other women. And then the other thing I get lots of calls about are how to manage chronic pain and remain a sober woman. And because I have you know, I mean, I haven't told you my whole story, but I have lots of that. And that's the really cool thing that recovery does. It's just a different angle of approach. And so the very same things, like every tragedy, think about it. Somebody's back getting broken, being kicked through doors as a little kid. That sounds like trauma that I could get people to feel really sorry for me for that, right? Forget that. Because of that, because of that is become such a gift in my life and to other people. The other thing is I went through all this hell sober because I, I got sober. I had a business. I had a Harley Davidson. I had a wreck. I got drove over by a car in the middle of the highway. Um, I had a traumatic brain injury, spinal cord injury. I lost everything I owned and I was on food stamps and social security disability at 12 years sober. So what's going to become of me, right? And so that sounds really terrible too. If I didn't have the childhood I had, I would not have been prepared for the wreck and all of those things. Then I had cancer. This all happened in six years. Then I had the lower back surgery because the back break got exacerbated in the wreck. And then for the grand finale of that six years, I fell through an addict in my Victorian house and broke my neck. And was mm-hmm. paralyzed and spent three months in the hospital. But here's the good news. In that six years, I learned to walk three times. AA never left me. My, my family's not capable of showing up for me in that way. They came for one week. AA did over and over. And when I didn't think I had any value because my face got ripped off, my brain injury, my big, bright brain, I couldn't remember anything anymore. I couldn't earn money, which are all things I thought gave me value. And I think that's really, I'm sorry, I'm going so fast, but I think that's really what we mean when we say that our value can't come from anything outside of us, not what we do for a living, not how much money we have or don't have, not how we look, not how smart we are. Our value has to come from just being a child of God and being willing to be a good steward of whatever God gives us. It's because in a moment, all of that was gone. And then what happened was people brought me newcomers and they brought me newcomers that were feeling sorry for themselves. And I was having seizures and I couldn't remember their name after they left, but I would have a seizure while they were whining to me. And all of a sudden they would feel better. (laughs) And which is just, just, you know, and and I didn't know what happened. I just knew when people came to my home, they felt sad. And when they left my home, they felt happy. And what I did, because we have to partner with God is I let it be enough. I let it be enough for my life to have value in me to be useful. And that's what sponsorship gives you on the end of being a sponsor, no matter what. That's what making coffee gives you no matter what. That's what taking a senior person to meetings does no matter what. You know, it gives you value. And if I can help somebody, my life's worth living, period not my businesses, not money, not houses, but the ability to reach out and make a difference in somebody else's life. That's the magic. And how blessed am I? And so every single bad thing that's ever happened, God has made great use of. And I mean, I am, I'm blessed in every way imaginable. I mean, all this pain I've been in you know, I've, I've actually written articles for magazines about how to do pain organically. You know, I, I, I've i been paid lots of money to speak at conferences, um, you know, outside of Alcoholics Anonymous. It's like, why? Because I have this big crazy story. And um, and so, but, but but also what happened? I didn't use this big crazy story to feel sorry for myself. I applied the steps. I was in Alcoholics Anonymous. And because of it, I have a very different angle of approach. And I don't feel sorry for myself. I, I know what matters. And who's luckier than me, John? Who's luckier? Nobody. I'm God's favorite.
1: <laughs> <laughs> I think I'm God's favorite. I, I may have to argue with you on that.
0: <laughs> right? Well, we. I mean, is, that's, that's the beautiful thing. My grandma, who was like my person, right, and then changed my life, because um, she was consistent in her love, right? She was consistent in her love, but she made—I I got to do her eulogy. I got to do my father-in-law's eulogy. I got to do my brother-in-law's eulogy. Nobody would even let me near them. So this is miraculous, right? And um, but but my grandma, what I said in her eulogy, I said, "I believe I was—we called her Gogo. I believe I was Gogo's favorite." And I looked at my cousins and I said, and I believe that every one of you thought you were too. And that's how I want to be. And I think that's representative God. I think we all get to be the favorite and feel special and cared about when we develop that relationship.
1: So I wanted to also talk to you a little bit about, I, I don't know why this uh, uh, intrigues me, but um, the, the, the uh the life if you will of the circuit speaker because people look at circuit speakers right in some sort of elevated position sometimes but every time i talk to them they have a little bit of a a different take on it if you will so what has it been like being a circuit speaker like like the ups and the downs what have you learned about yourself from it
0: oh my goodness um the first time I spoke at a conference I was four years sober and I immediately got asked to speak at another conference because I already had a big story before all this sober trauma happened, right? I had a big story and and I talked good. Um, and I was using profanity from the podium that no one should use, but yet they were still asking me to speak at other conferences. It was insane. And my sponsor grabbed me by the short hairs and said, Do not believe your own press, first thing. And second thing she did was she pulled me off for a while. And because I was believing my own press, because what you see of me is one hour. And, um, and, and sometimes you get treated like a rock star, and sometimes you get treated like who cares. But it is ego feeding. And so I always remember don't believe your own press because people know you one hour. And the difference now is I very much talk about my shortcomings from the podium, not a fisto, but the fact that i'm a human being and it is in my erroring it's when i fail that you get to see my real recovery because will i own it will i take responsibility for it will i be vulnerable enough you talked about that in the beginning but will i be vulnerable enough to show my humanity to you so that you don't think that i'm more special than everybody else cuz i'm not and I just talk good and have a big story. And I sponsor these other women in recovery. The other thing I do is I only speak once a month. If I allowed it, I'd be out every week with the invitations I get. And, and I appreciate it. But there are so many ways to be of service in AA. And if I'm gone every week, whose wedding am I showing up for? Whose baby shower? How do I show up for my life? So one of the things is I took me off of the constant circuit because a far better example lies in our daily lives. And what I do in that one hour, yes, it motivates people and sometimes inspires people, but what I do at home and in my community and with my parents and my relationships, that's a, that's, that's way more important. And so you know, and that doesn't mean I'm saying no to a request. It means I'm saying yes once a month and I'm saying yes to all the other things the rest of the time. Mm. If, you know, does that make sense?
1: It does make sense. Yeah. Um So take me then back a little bit. Uh, so what age did you end up sobering up?
0: Um, I came at 17 and. Um, Got back and got more felonies when I relapsed and um, I got sober finally at 22. And I've been sober every day in a row since I was 22 years old. But I've been drinking since I was nine and I've been drinking alcoholics at least since I was 12. Um, first time somebody confronted me about it, I was 14. My foster mom told me I was an alcoholic Um, And then when I um, wound up in the hospital strapped to a stretcher hanging on a wall and the cops had beat me with billy clubs to keep from shooting me, the nurse said, you're an alcoholic. You did this when I wanted to know who did this to me. And um, so even though I was very young, the, the problem with being that alcoholic that young is that I got sober with the maturation of a nine year old. So basic skill sets that some people get sober with, I didn't have, you know, I wouldn't even after I had my businesses and was successful, I had um, absolute terror to go to a fancy restaurant Mm. because I was sure everybody there would know I didn't belong there. And I, and I was sure I would do something wrong, the wrong plate, the wrong fork or something. Now today I can go there all day long and it's fine and I love it and I love food, but those were some of the things I, I, the genie machine, I don't know, it was one of the first ATMs and then it, and that came out when I was very early in sobriety and it would let you keep getting money. Even if you'd written check, you know, and so I didn't know how to balance a checkbook. I didn't know how to do any of those things. And I really screwed up at like five years sober because I was unwilling to ask for help from other people in AA. When I got in trouble, then I was willing to raise my hand because I was afraid of going to jail sober. And people came and they helped me and I learned. But I didn't know what I didn't know. If that makes sense, and then maturity for being like in in sexual relationships, it's like somebody that's been in prison for a long time. They're not ready, and I w- I wasn't ready. I didn't have the emotional maturity or skill sets to handle that, and I just re-traumatized myself with sexual relationships. Been having sex since I was nine years old, but none of it was healthy, and so. All that maturation had to come sober, and the truth is, Alcoholics Anonymous raised me. And there's there's nobody like there, Like if I ask you, if I say, John, I don't know how to balance my checkbook, John, I'm bouncing checks. You may not be the financial person that can help me figure that out, but you'll know somebody that can. If I'll just be willing to tell you, because it's the shame of those kind of things, and it's different for all of us. But that shame, I believe, sends a lot of us out drinking. Because if I tell you that, you're not going to judge me. You're not going to be mad at me. You know, you're gonna. Now, if I do it and you help me, and then I do it again next month, you might be. But, you know. <laughs> you know. But I've never met anybody that has real recovery that's not willing to help other people figure it out.
1: All right. I want to go back to something you said real quick that just struck me. You said you were strapped on a wall. Can you describe that again? It, it sounded like you were up, right up and down within. No. Okay.
0: So what happens is um, on the stretcher, they, they tie you down and then in a wall on a, in a, in the hospital, they have hooks and they put the stretcher up off the ground and hook it on the wall ah. so that you, because I was flipping it over on my face. And because I was so angry that I would just hurt me, which is the story of my life. And so they hung me on a wall to keep me from flipping the stretcher over anymore. I was an animal. I was an animal. I live like an animal. I come from the streets. I was treated like an animal. And so my sobriety in my life, John, I can't tell you, I can't tell you how miraculous it is. I can't tell you how grateful I am. Um, I could never, give back enough to pay back Alcoholics Anonymous ever.
1: Okay. So did you have any idea, any inkling at the time that you had the kind of mind that could run businesses uh, and be successful at it?
0: Well, when I was really little, like eight, nine years old, I had a little lawn mowing and cleaning business. So, so I knew that I could hustle. And then on the streets, it wasn't one you want to talk about here, but I hustled. And, it, and so what I knew is I couldn't get a job because I didn't. I just got a job set in the back in the fields when I first got sober, but I couldn't get a decent job. And I was arrogant. My ego, my ego compensated for how much insecurity and inferiority I felt so my ego would override it was a good use of ego and I thought if those people can why can't I the business I have now um my primary business is a digital agency and when I had the wreck um and then I got cancer and somewhere in between no after cancer so after cancer and all that happened everything was succinct succinct when I had been so disabled and kind of homebound, the internet was new and AOL was new. And I got to talk to people and have community and have community with recovering people all day long. And so I never got lonely, even in the middle of the night with pain and things or groups to talk and I fell in love with it. I thought, oh my gosh, if this internet thing is responsible, the world could be so fair for disabled people, for everybody. And uh, now, mind you, I'm still a recipient of the Traumatic Brain Injury Trust Fund. They're not giving me money. They're coming to my house to help me pay my bills because I'm not organized enough to figure it out anymore. And I told that lady, I say, look, lady, I'm going to start a business next week. Now, you can imagine what she must have thought. <laughs> and what she, was, um, what she said was, if you need help there, let me know. I'll help you organize there, too. And 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 I'm so grateful for that. And so I had seventeen hundred dollars to my name, not to start the business. I had seventeen hundred dollars to my name. And I started this business in a coffee shop, and somehow I got people to believe me and give me a deposit to build them a website that I can't build, and then I got people to build it that I couldn't pay until I got paid and I started this business because I know how to hustle. And um Today it does business globally, and that's insane. You know, I mean, it's just insane. It's a it's a global business. It's a it's 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 got incredible revenue. And then I started a. Um, I wanted to help people in Haiti, and I was in an entrepreneurs group. And one of the guys had a factory that he built commercial panels to build commercial buildings that are hurricane-resistant, tornado-resistant. And we tried to help Haiti and build kid houses because it would have changed Haiti. We could rebuild Haiti in two months. And when the next earthquake or hurricane happened, they wouldn't be in the same spot that they got in. But you have to bribe your way, and it's really hard to help people sometimes. And then, so we started a small and tiny house kid business. And um, so we have them all over the country now and uh, even the Bahamas. And it's really cool. And now I'm building houses too. So it's just fun. It's just fun. Here's what's the advantage of not being educated and told. If you don't understand what you can't do, you can do anything i i i didn't understand that you had to have a degree to do this or this <laughs> to do that and i just did it and um i've often felt like an imposter but it seems to be working okay and i admit it when i feel like an imposter <laughs> crazy right it's crazy
1: I, I heard you tell a story once about it was about a Being in a foster home, I believe there were some kids with muscular dystrophy, and then you got a job with the March of Dimes. Can you, or or, it was somebody. Can you walk through that, please?
0: Yeah, sure. That foster home where my foster mom told me that I was an alcoholic, so her kids had muscular dystrophy, and that home probably saved my life because um, I felt valued because they needed me. I helped put the kids to bed. I helped give them baths. I was 14 years old there um, and I wanted to be there, but um, she had only one rule. I was allowed to drink, but I wasn't allowed to drink till the kids were in bed, but I couldn't keep that commitment. And I drank before the kids went to bed and she had to kick me out, even though she really needed me. Mm-hmm. And um, so, and she said when we were playing chess and drinking beer, um, which I don't think it's that appropriate for your foster mom to drink. but <laughs> When we were playing chess and drinking beer, she said, you know, you're an alcoholic and I probably am too. So then fast forward, when I got sober the first time I got sober, I was sober about two years and um, and I was doing well, I was giving talks everywhere and I, I, I had used money from a fundraiser when I lived in that foster home. I tried to invest the money and went south and I went to make amends. And through that process, somehow I got offered a job. It was all just weird timing. I thought it must have been God. And I, um, I accepted and I became the executive director for the Outline Counties. I was 20 years old, two years sober, did not even go to high school. And I took the job and I wasn't ready for it. See, my I have an ego that has to be more to be enough. So I've got to have a better house so it's good enough for you to come to. I got to have a better car so it's good enough for you to ride in. I got to be more to be enough, not to be better than you. I don't want to be better than anybody. But long story short is I took this job and I didn't know how to do it. I didn't know what to do. And I did not come to AA and tell people I'm afraid. Instead, I came to AA, handed out my business card, told you that you too, if you did the steps, could have the same things I had. <laughs> and what happened was I got so filled with hatred and Self-hatred and shame because I knew I was a big fat liar. You know, I knew that I didn't know how to do it. I hid from the secretary. I had no idea what to do. That's what I mean by that maturation. I could convince you I was more mature than I was because I have good survival tools, but I really wasn't ready. And I didn't have the humility to come and say, I don't know. And if I did, I would have had two choices. People would have told me how to do it and what to do. Or they would have told me it was okay to quit something, even if it looks like a gift. I didn't know I could quit the job. And so I felt like it was a gift from God. And so I had to have it, but I couldn't tell you because I was telling you how great I was. Cause I got to be more to be enough. And I got drunk. i would had that job for almost a year. And at three years sober, I got drunk and, um, and I was relieved about it because I, I wanted to quit, but I didn't know I was allowed. But when I quit, when I drank, I went back to AA. I thought I would get sober right away. And I couldn't because what happened, I mean, I went to the meeting, I raised my hand, I'm back, and I left that meeting. And I was 21 years old at the time, and I bought my first legal bottle of whiskey. And it was on, and I drank for almost a year, and occasionally I tried to come back to AA. But that phenomenon of craving owned me until finally... You know, I had a bottom and I conceded to my innermost self, which did not happen in the first recovery. I admitted I was alcoholic. I admitted my life was unmanageable, never been manageable, and I was alcoholic. What I didn't do was concede to my innermost self that I'm an alcoholic. And what happened this time is I had that shift where no matter how successful I get, no matter how much education I get, no matter... how mature I get, no matter how much therapy I have, no matter what, I'm going to still be an alcoholic. It's not because of my childhood. It's not because of my lack of skills that I'm an alcoholic. I'm an alcoholic because of the way I react to alcohol. And I will always develop the phenomenal craving and it will take me out. And I said, the magic words, God help me. And I have been sober ever since.
1: So, you have quite a few people that are listening to you across the world, actually. Um, and several of them, or many of them, I should say, or, you know, they've considered uh, Alcoholics Anonymous. They've considered other ways of staying sober. They, um, you know, are listening to this because they're in some form or fashion are probably interested in sobriety. Um, Can you talk a little about your experience, strength and hope and maybe how you struggled with that and talk to those people about uh, what they need to know about uh, AA or any 12 step program?
0: Well, first of all, I'll tell you, I I, I didn't trust it because people talked about God and I had been dipped, sunk. (laughs) <laughs> I, I, you know every religion in the world you know and it's like and and so I was afraid and I, I, would, I, I was afraid and I didn't trust people that tried to help me because I had always named people with an agenda and anytime they tried to help me it was but you need to be like this or you're a sinner or you're a blank and yes we'll welcome you but you're a sinner You know, and it's like, golly, I still hate that. You know, it's like, you know, and so, um, but there were some people, honestly, that would drop the F-bomb and it made me more comfortable in the beginning. It doesn't make me more comfortable now, but in the beginning, it there was an old timer that did that and it made me feel like I didn't have to be perfect and that it wasn't what I was used to. So the first thing I had to do was be not afraid of all the God language. And, um, the next thing was that I needed to find somebody that when they told their story, cause that's what the big book talks about. It's like, can I, that I could latch onto. And all of us have a North star inside of us that if we'll listen to it, North. And so once I could get over the God thing, I loved Alcoholics Anonymous. I had never been a part of something that I was really a part of. I didn't know how to be a part of things. And, you know, I, they put me, you know, they let me do things and they they put me in a car with them. And we went places and we had fun and we had picnics. And then they, they took me through the steps. I found a sponsor who took me through the steps because you need a tour guide for this thing. And that's what a sponsor really is. It's your tour guide. And so we went through the steps hand in hand and I learned about what they meant. And I learned about my choices around them. For me, the third step was very challenging. And the third step in Alcoholics Anonymous, for those of you that don't know, you know, it's, um, it's I'm turning my will in life over the care of God as I understand him. And so that scared me to death. And I had had other people that tried to get me to do that in other ways and then they said I could have any God I wanted, and so for me, it's been an evolving God. It started out as the group, you know, because the group together I trusted the group conscience, and then it's been evolving. And I I study everything, and I can't describe my God. And my God does not belong to a single religion. My God belongs to all of them. And I'm allowed to have that in AA, and that's the cool thing. And if your God belongs to a religion, we encourage you to have that, even if it's different than somebody else's. The beautiful thing in Alcoholics Anonymous, and this helped me, it's like even, they even talked about Muslims in 1939, that even there were some of those in AA, which means that you can have very different people in the same room. And all we do is use the word God, and it can mean whatever it needs to mean to you. It can mean the tree, it can mean it can mean whatever Buddha. It can it can mean Jesus. It can mean anything that works for you. And that is what I, that is my favorite thing about AA, because it, I could safely get a relationship with a higher power that solved my problems, and my problems have been solved. And I have been made useful. And I am a whole human being. And somebody like me, I wasn't destined to be a whole human being. I was destined to be as broken and fragmented as I was when I came here. And I am not.
1: You know, I had no idea what to expect when we got together. Uh, like I said, I knew you a little bit. I knew some of your story, but I didn't know much. And this has been really uh, just a a great pleasure, Cindy. Uh, you're uh, you're an inspiration. Like you say, you have a big story, uh, but there's a lot of depth and weight the uh, weight behind that big story. And I'm so glad we got together today. Um, I always close this. Is there anything else you want to say before I close it? I'd always read from page 164. Is there anything you just want to make sure you say?
0: Thank you for having me.
1: Yeah. Well, God bless you. Um, It says, uh, page 164 says, abandon yourself to God as you understand God. Admit your faults to him and to your fellows, much like Cindy was talking about earlier. Clear away the wreckage of your past. Give freely of what you find and join us. We shall be with you in the fellowship of the spirit and you will surely meet some of us like me and Cindy as you trudge the road of happy destiny. May God bless you and keep you until then. Once again, Cindy, thanks for coming
0: on. Thanks for having me.
1: Thank you again, Cindy. Wasn't she a treat. Uh, I absolutely enjoyed hearing her story, uh, spending time with her, and I'm sure you did as well. If you could, please go ahead and pause that little device that you're on there. Uh, Hit that share button and share Cindy's episode with a friend or a family member. That episode may be just what they need today. And now on to a little bit of listener feedback. By the way, if you ever want to write in to me, uh, you're more than welcome to do that. I'm at JohnJohn at SoberSpeak.com. And if you are not part of the Super Secret Facebook group, you can search up on your Facebook application, uh, Sober Speak Secret Group, Ask for admission and we will get you on in that group. And if you're not following us on Instagram, it's at SoberSpeak, all one word. And Pinterest is the same thing, at Pinterest. And I actually have a Twitter account, but I've never really feel, figured out what to do with that. I, I, I don't pay much attention to it. Uh, forgive me if you're out there and you're on it and yeah, you don't see any responses or anything, but I think that's sober underscore speak, if I'm not mistaken. Anyway, now onto a little bit of a listener feedback. Sue writes in, she says, subject line is, greetings from Australia. Well, hello, Sue. She says, hello, John. Thank you for what you do on the Sober Speak podcast and your humor and warmth. Well, thank you, Sue. By the way, she spells humor wrong. Uh, when I say wrong, it's how the Australians and the English people uh, spell it is with a uh, uh, O U R. I'm sure as Americans are spelling it wrong, but anyway, you get the idea. She says, I am English, oh, living in Australia, and I listened to the oh, oh and I listened to the How Do You Cope with Ellis and John podcast. Uh, from the UK, and she gave me their email, uh, which you just mentioned on in episode 299, because they had mentioned Sober Speak in their episode about John's struggle, the other John, John's struggle with alcohol. Well, that's cool, Sue, that you found that. Um, anyway, she says it was their podcast which recently led me to sober speak and as an adult child of a mother who struggled with alcohol i find it so helpful to listen to it feels like things have come full circle best wishes sue and so you know i'm thinking about this actually while i am recording i should have thought about this earlier Uh, sometimes i don't read things as uh uh Closely as I should, but uh, Cassandra, if you're listening to this and I have not forwarded you over her email, it sounds like the adult child... Uh, uh, adult children of Alcoholics Anonymous uh, program who who uh, which has been featured here on sober speak may be a benefit to Sue. So, Cassandra, please remind me if I forget. Please, thank you. Uh, and also, oh, we also have Karen who uh, is a big uh, ACOA advocate and listens to the program. So, Karen, I'm um, welcome to hear from you as well. Once again, if I forget, uh, but anyway, Tracy writes in and she says, hi, John, not sure how sober speak came to me uh, on Facebook. Oh, she found us through Facebook, but it was a wealth of info on our program, steps, etc. And I've shared it with my sponsees, and by the way, sponsees, I don't think is a real word. <laughs> <laughs> and it's coming up as a a misspelled word here but i think that is something that people in alcoholics anonymous use or other 12-step programs and it's just interesting to me the the language that comes up out of uh all these 12-step programs but anyway she says i have 28 years and i am so thankful for our program and god gave and gives me a new life god bless tracy well You're right about that, Tracy. I appreciate you writing in, and God has given us uh, a new life. Nancy writes in, and the uh, subject line was Scott Redman. Now, Scott Redman is an episode that we published. Oh, in fact, I think I've got it here. Where do I have it? Scott, uh, I think it's two. Oh, episode number 296. Ah. Now that I'm looking at what she wrote, she actually explains it's episode number 296 in here. But nonetheless, uh, this is an episode that we published a few weeks back, right? Or a month back, whatever it is, a month, is, two months back. And uh, it's episode number 296, and Scott is a gentleman that has uh, a... a renowned speaker in Alcoholics Anonymous that has gone to the big meeting in the sky. But she says, Hi, John, I'm a longtime member of Al-Anon, but I listen to your podcast as well, the reco- as well as The Recovery Show almost daily. It's a wonderful addition to my meetings. And she's talking about The Recovery Show, which is put on by a friend of mine named Spencer, and his is uh, uh, geared uh, all Alanon over there, which which I am uh, primarily AA, but you know they're uh, but they're uh, he has a great podcast, and I highly recommend that. Anyway, she says I have listened to episode number two hundred ninety six with Scott Redmond several times. What can I say? That man was one in a million. The community has lost such a wise and beloved member of AA. I agree, Nancy, I agree. I was devastated to hear of his passing and can't seem to find uh, anything about how he died or when. Uh, he had to have been only in his 50s, question mark, with a, what a loss for his family and all that he inspired and helped throughout the years. His story and delivery was both incredibly funny, but filled with such spiritual spirituality and strength. Can you tell me a bit more about him, how I can write his family? I would greatly appreciate it. By the way, she says I have been a guest on the Recovery Show podcast with Spencer, and told my friend about both your podcasts. What a gift to have this available to so many! Thank you, Nancy L. Well, I took her uh, uh, email and I copied my friend Bill C. on the email, and the reason I copied him is because I knew that Bill was a um, uh, he was very close to Scott and. Uh, so bill replied by the way i also gave her the the url if anybody wants to go there it's called scottredman.net where you can leave comments to scott's family uh, and for others to see publicly uh, regarding scott and that's scott uh, s c o t t redman dot net if you want to go out there and uh, leave some comments uh, for scott's family anyway and then Bill C responded about Scott and he said Scott was a dear friend of mine and I miss him every day 15 later 15 years later he had hepatitis c and never took treatment for it he got liver cancer they did a pretty radical surgery and removed the tumor uh he had a he lost a lot of liver function and was in line for a transplant but got an infection and became too weak to survive the surgery and passed away very sad. What a legacy he left behind. His memorial is something I will never forget. He was greatly loved and had a major impact on me and many others. So thank you. Thank you, Nancy, for writing in. Thank you, Bill C., for your comments there. And God bless you, Scott Redmond. Uh, We shall miss you. Uh, We do miss you. And um, there's, there's still so much love being sent up for this man. Anyway, thanks for writing in, Nancy. Cynthia writes in, and Cynthia says, Hello, I just found your website, and I love it. I started step three, and I was disappointed because there weren't, weren't any worksheets for it. Any chance there will be soon. Thanks, and have a good day. So we have worksheets on the website for just about all the steps, I think step three and step twelve are missing, and you know it just takes a while to get those things written properly, get them up but uh, uh I told uh, uh Cynthia that we're gonna get that up as soon as we possibly can, but thanks for writing in Cynthia, and i'm 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 glad those uh worksheets are. Uh, working out for you. John D writes in and John D says, Hey, John, just wanted to say hello. And I hope you are recovering from your dose of the Rona. (laughs) He's talking about the Corona that uh, I uh, had. And yes, I'm doing much better. Uh, Still kind of lingering on a little but overall is, is doing all right. He says, when I opened my last email to you with Hola, John. He put O-L-A, John. I thought I was saying hello, John, in Spanish, but perhaps my Spanish is worse than yours. <laughs> well, yeah, I think you're right. <laughs> And that's really hard to do, uh, John. So anyway, he spelled Ola, uh, which is H O L A, uh, O L A. And and that's what he's talking about. Anyway, John says, I received my six month chip last week. I'm feeling pretty grateful about that and recovery in general. These days, this year has been a turning. Oh, this year has been turning into something I never believed possible. God, God, seems to be placing my work in every city and town I've ever worked in over the last few years. Oh, wow. That must be, yeah, uh, kind of, uh, uh, being able to go back to those towns and reminisce and see it from a different viewpoint. Anyway, he says, places I spent many nights trapped in my alcoholism, feeling hopeless. It's been an amazing experience uh, to be working in the same places and having a completely different experience. Oh, I'm sorry. I'm sorry. I started talking before you were, you were done (laughs) and you were going to say that anyway. He says, enjoy your day and continue moving into the light. And then he put prayer hands and, um, uh, uh, and and then like a uh, what do you call? I guess that's like a rock and roll sign, or a, <laughs> we know where the the two outer to, down here in Texas it means hook them horns, but I think it means other things worldwide. But nonetheless, any signs of John D? So it's interesting that you say that uh, John D moving into the light because I have been ah. Uh, uh, considering that and praying about that and thinking about the things that bring me light and the things that do not bring me light uh, recently and how to balance all that out. Uh, and uh, anyway, God bless you, my friend. All right, so that, my friends, is another episode, episode number 303, did I get that right? Yeah, 303 in the books or in the can uh, keep coming back at works if you work it. may God bless you and keep you until then. I plan on being back next week, but you never know uh, God could call me to that big meeting in the sky and I could be sitting down with mr Scott redmond and and tell him about how much I appreciated everything that he shared when he was down here but and many others oh Charlie and uh just anyway. Uh, get a little uh, uh, emotional thinking about that. All right. All right. Y'all take care. Love you. Uh, hope to see you next week. Bye-bye.